HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste. Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on, maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So when this episode airs, the 2020 presidential election will be less than two weeks away. I, I know it's been a crazy campaign season and everything happening in the news cycle right now, can feel really overwhelming um, from White House COVID-19 outbreaks to a rushed Supreme Court hearing. There's a lot going on. And, you know, this is the Farm Report. And sometimes I feel like I just want to ignore politics and focus on talking about growing winter greens or raising turkeys for Thanksgiving. But the reality is the outcome of the election is going to affect farmers, our ability to produce food on this planet as the climate changes, and really the entire food system. So we've got to talk about politics. So to provide one viewpoint from the heartland, I invited John Russell to join me on today's show. John is a farmer who has also worked on political campaigns and is now running Rural Vote, a super PAC that's working to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on behalf of farmers and rural communities. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lisa. I'm very excited to be here and I love talking about all those things you mentioned. <laughs> maybe maybe we could also talk about vegetables or something. Love winter greens. 
<laughs> so, uh, John, I met you when I was doing some reporting in Iowa a while back, but you're based in Ohio, is that right? Yeah, just outside of Columbus. Uh, grew up in Ohio, so great to be back. Great. And tell us about your farming experience. Did you grow up on a farm? Are you currently farming? Yeah, I did. Um, I grew up on a farm in Wellsville, Ohio. That's the eastern side of the state, little town nobody's heard of unless you know Fiesta Ware, uh, which is made right across the river. Uh, I had that in college. Uh, Well, I'm impressed. (laughs) That's very nice. Uh, Please continue buying it. It's a manufacturing town. That's one of the last ones that's still alive there. So we love love Fiesta Ware. But that's where the home farm was. Um, Both of my grandparents uh, were dairy farmers, but um, dairy farming, as you know, is pretty hard. They went out of business before I came along. Um, farming kind of skipped a generation with my parents, uh, but my brother and I did a combined 19 years of 4-H projects in county fairs, which every one of the 19 years, my mom uh, lived for about a week in the camper in the middle of sweltering August heat uh, for 19 years, so bless her <laughs> for that. Uh, but I, I, I left uh, Wellsville on the home farm. I did an ag science degree up at Cornell University. And uh, pretty shortly after I graduated, I came back home to Ohio and um, started Fall Creek Farm, which was my 21-acre chemical-free mixed produce operation. And I grew there for seven seasons before leaving for the Warren campaign and eventually ended up with Rural Vote. Wow. So, yeah. So when did you create Rural Vote and uh, what was the impetus behind it? So I was hired by uh, RuralVote.org. That's our convenient whole name. Um, rural votes actually ruralvote.org was created in September, but our um, larger organization is ruralorganizing.org. That's been run by Matt Hildreth, a rural activist um, with a long campaign history of uh, of ad- advocacy for rural areas and farmers. Um, but we started it uh, to give uh, both a voice to progressives that are listen- that that are living in rural areas. Uh, and also to to advocate for those same people, uh, those same people in in the land that they represent. Um, mm. A lot of those issues are at stake in the twenty twenty election, and we're very excited to be working around them. Right. So you're out there trying to increase rural vo- voter support for uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and I'd imagine a lot of that is talking to people about what matters to them. Right. So. What are some of the biggest issues that farmers and other rural voters you're talking to are concerned about right now? Yeah, I I love this question because it's kind of a window into rural politics, which I feel like is misunderstood a lot of the time. But it's it's what anybody else wants, really. I mean, it it comes down to having the basics covered and having a fair shot at enjoying the fruits of their labor. You know, um, it's often, t- you know, rural politics is often talked about in terms of farmers. But the thing to realize is that rural America is diverse in its own way. Um, there, for example, are more people of color in rural areas uh, than farmers. Um, these are small communities. They've got they've got doctors and nurses, teachers, cops, lawyers, retired folks, everybody, right? And it's why I like to say that all policy is actual rural policy because rural America has a little cross-section of everybody living in those communities. And that gets back to the issues that they want being really simple. Those are 
um, everything that goes into um, a happy, healthy community uh, that's like the one that I grew up in. I mean, rural areas are really great places for kids to grow up. You know, I have such good memories of going to the county fair and uh, having a community that where everybody knows each other. Sometimes that's not as fun. You know, my mom was a high school teacher and I had a, a graduating class of 55 kids. Everybody knows everybody else's business. But there's also a lot to be celebrated in communities like that. And all of the issues that affect whether kids like me are going to be able to continue enjoying what's best about growing up in those areas. All those issues are on the table in this election. And they're the basics. It's um, having a hospital with a maternity ward, you know, so you, you're, you you can start a family there and know that critical care is is not a two hour drive away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being able to, you know, shop at businesses that are that are local that haven't been run out by Walmart or Dollar General. That's on the table in the election. Um, it's, you know, being able to go into business without uh, an industry controlled by two monopolies, right? That freezes everybody else out. Um, it's strong education, uh, access to skilled trade jobs, and you know, student loan debt relief that doesn't stick you with a lifetime payment forever. We might not think of these issues as as, as rural in nature, but they're absolutely critical to making sure that these small towns that we all know and love uh, that are the first thing we think of when we think of nostalgia, um, solving these issues is is critical to preserving rural communities, which is what everybody wants. Right. And, you know, you're obviously something for Biden. Um, so why do you think his plan is the right one for farmers and rural America? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's clear that Joe Biden and his team uh, have done the homework and actually have listened to rural communities. And uh, you don't go through the homework or the work of listening without caring about the people there. Um, that's evident in, in Joe Biden's uh, plan, you know, which is a lot more than just a collection of talking points that have, have no relation to each other. It's more than um, just consultants that will um, tack on the typical issues of broadband and, and kind of put together a hodgepodge plan for rural America. When you really look at his plan, um, he's getting into the nitty gritty. It's about antitrust enforcement. It's about uh, enforcing GYPSA, something that can um, regulate the largest of these companies and make sure farmers have a level playing field where they can actually enjoy the fruits of their labor. Uh, he advocates for new and uh, novel solutions that that put people in the driver's seat in rural communities. I think of uh, the conservation stewardship program um, that pays farmers on working lands uh, to both make an income, but also be part of conserving our natural resources, which are are precious. Uh, He wraps that into preserving rural hospitals and connecting kids to the internet, especially in the time of COVID, so they don't fall behind. The list goes on and on of uh, Biden's plan for rural America, but it just stands in stark contrast um, to a president 
who is, in my humble opinion, doing what uh, every you know, kind of weak and incompetent person who didn't do the homework and is now facing the due date would do, which is shamelessly showing up with a bag of money to rural America and trying to buy off the vote. Um, that's the kind of contrast that is very apparent in the, in the 19 days to go until we have an election. But um, what really makes me hopeful is that, you know, we can place our trust in Joe Biden and it makes me excited to do the work that's possible once we turn the page on Donald Trump and actually start to rebuild our communities. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you too, you know, I, I did some reporting for civil eats on, um, how different, different groups within agriculture, um, were kind of thinking about some of the, the Biden, uh, campaign promises and also the democratic party's, um, uh, platform for this year. And, you know, so, some of the more progressive agriculture groups um, are a little, I don't want to say, well, maybe disappointed and are trying to push the Biden campaign to be um, a, a little bit further uh, to the left, I guess, more to be more progressive on food and farm policy, to include more for smaller farms, um, maybe be more aggressive on including CAFOs, um, or like regulations on KFOs, things like that. Basically, kind of a more transformative approach to changing the food system. Um, what do you think about how progressive his plan is? Like, do you think it could be more progressive? Do you think it it should be where it is along the spectrum? How do you think about that? Yeah. Well, look, you also have to take my answer into uh, consideration that I worked as Elizabeth Warren's rural outreach coordinator. Right. And and did a lot of uh, policy work on the agriculture plans uh, that she put out. So this is uh, right in the wheelhouse of what I really care about. And at the end of the day, um, this isn't about how uh, where a plan falls on the spectrum. It's about what is in that plan and if the ingredients are in there to solve the problems that are actually facing people in rural America, no matter who they voted for. And I fully endorse the plan because you can see what's, what's, you know, obviously Joe Biden wasn't my first choice in the primary, but his redeeming quality um, is that he knows, he knows how to bring coalitions together and you can see the evidence for that in the details we just went over in his farm plan. Um, it didn't always start out like that. But now you read this plan and you see everything present there that is needed to solve all of the problems in rural America. You know, um, monopoly control and concentration has, been, has put farmers under their thumb for decades and decades and decades. And um, companies only get larger and their control only grows more powerful, while the best that uh, farmers can hope for is prices that are break even, right? How do you address that? We need a an absolute resurgence in how we think of antitrust law and antitrust enforcement um, to actually make good on uh, a capitalist economy. What that depends on is competition and small business and options for farmers. And um, when you think about how to get there, all of that is outlined uh, in the Biden plan, and it goes right on down the list of progressive priorities. When you think of um, rural environments and natural resources, water and air and soil, 
Um, the tool to make good on that and make sure farmers are at the table is the conservation stewardship program that actually pays farmers um, for, you know, growing food and fiber in a way that doesn't pollute our air, water and soil. And it's right in the Biden plan. Um, that's a path forward to have many different ways to earn income on the farm, which at the end of the day is the problem that we're all facing. We have uh, let uh, giant companies kind of set up a system by and for themselves that have taken away all the other options uh, for farmers. It's made rural America into an old company town, much like you'd see in Appalachian and coal country, right? Uh, where the company you buy inputs from and the company you sell your product to is the same company. Um, when you think about progressives and people from all over the spectrum coming together to address problems, all the tools necessary to do that made it into the Biden Ag Plan. And as a person who supported Elizabeth Warren, uh, that's certainly good in my book. Mm. Got it. Um, we're going to take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm talking to John Russell, a farmer and political organizer, about his work on rural vote. So, John, I want to. We talked about a lot of issues um, that are important to rural communities uh, during this election before the break. I want to bring up one issue, which is climate change. <laughs> we talk yes. about climate change a lot on this show because. You know, it's the single most important issue affecting the future of life on our planet, including our <laughs> that's ability small to, thing, yeah, yeah, just yeah, you know, including our ability to grow food and feed ourselves, right? And that's that's not a political idea; it's just a fact. Um, so, are the farmers and people in communities you're talking to concerned about climate change right now? Do you think that will play a role in the election? I, I mean, are, are farmers concerned about crazy weather? Yes. <laughs> 
Their life depends on it. Farmer, I mean, I can say are the that. most weather-obsessed people in the world. Of course. Of <laughs> yeah. course. You know, you feel it in your bones. You look at it on the app. You watch it, uh, watch over your crops every day and worry about them. I mean, that's a, you know, now I am more of a farmer's advocate than I am a farmer. But for seven seasons, I was a grower. And uh, absolutely. I mean, farming is one of the toughest industries out there. And uh, that's before you take weather into an account in a single event might take out your ability to earn income in that year. Um, and climate change is only intensifying that. And when you get right down to it, there's really no way to spin uh, five inches of rain in a couple hours or pests and disease that show up in places where they've never been. Um, or rain. I mean, that, ne that never falls in an area where you could count on it like the sun coming up in the east. The, the fact is, is that these things are happening right before our eyes and farmers are actually some of the first people to feel it. Look at the storm that that wiped out millions of acres of, of corn in Iowa. Um, you know, the, evid the evidence is all around us. So I think wh whether you know it or not as a farmer, whether that matches up with your ideology or not, uh, they know it's happening because their income depends on it. And uh, it's impossible when, when that's the situation uh, to ignore the problem. And the, and the further we ignore it, the, the more painful it's going to be to actually solve it. But, you know, an another way to look at a massive challenge is a, is a massive opportunity. And um, I keep coming back to the things that are in the Biden ag plan um, that can diversify uh, the farm economy and give us a path forward to not only get through the climate change that's certainly in store for us, but to prosper with that problem and to have the stewards of our land on the front lines in, in rural communities be part of the solution. So what that looks like is, again, conservation stewardship program. That was invented in the heartland by Tom Harkin. And it's the stand on the shoulders of giants thing. That is now a key tenant in Biden's ag plan. And um, let's, look at a, let's look at a concrete application of that principle. Um, right now, the way we, we raise animals is uh, not good for anybody except for the really large meat companies that depend on cheap meat. Right. We, we raise uh, hogs and chickens and all kinds of other animals in, in tin sheds and they never see the light of day. Uh, it's not good for it's not good for water quality or animal health. The meat that it produces isn't good for us. And the income that farmers get is uh, tiny. Right. If you moved animal agriculture back onto pasture land, onto grassland, it's almost the complete opposite. When animals are coming through and eating grass, the grass is sucking carbon out of the air and they're making sunlight into energy. And when animals come through and eat the tops of the grass, the roots of the grass that sequestered, that took carbon out of the air, they shed and they remain in the soil. Animal grazing is actual, actually a way to sequester carbon. And that's not even the primary benefit of that. I mean, uh, the primary benefit here is a farmer grazing their animals and selling them at markets. So on the one hand, while farmers could be raising uh, meat that is uh, better for the animal, that's healthier for the people consuming it, 
that they get a fair price for at markets that is independent of the monopoly framework that's been that's been crushing income for them for for decades they can also be rewarded with a payment for doing that through a program like the Biden conservation stewardship um, item in their ag plan. And to me, that takes the massive challenge of meat production right now being part of the problem and turns it into part of the solution in a way that puts money back in the farmer's pockets. And that is, you know, what's what's not to like about that? Um, there's, yeah, I... Go ahead. <laughs> I... Uh, I mean, I think you're you're an optimist, and I and I like that. Um, but I, you know, animal agriculture has moved in this industrialized direction to where we are now over decades and decades of um, administrations of both parties, and I I wonder, you know. How much will really change? It will really change, regardless of the outcome of an, the election, when it comes to to how we produce meat. Yeah, I mean, really, I, I want to make a plug for listeners that it is up to us. You know, I mean, there's 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 two people who could win election here, and one of them has a toolkit that we can pick up those tools and we can make a new system for ourselves. Um, we could make that system that that boosts farm income, that's better for animal ethics, that's better for the climate, that's that keeps money local, that that makes rural people part of the part of the solution. Um, Biden's plan has all the tools necessary uh, for us to do that, but it's really on us, the people who care about this, um, to see it through. And what gives me hope about that is the fact that these things like antitrust enforcement. Um, GYPSA, uh, Conservation Stewardship Program, making sure that land-grant universities and the research that comes out of them is owned by the public and not private companies. Those things only ended up in the Biden plan um, because of the work that happened uh, with folks who care about it in the primary. The fact that he put those in there shows that he's willing to build coalitions, that he's willing uh, to hear people out and at the end of the day, while, uh, you know, I may not have gotten Elizabeth Warren, I did get a person that has a lot of her plans uh, represented and that uh, can give us a fighting chance of taking on uh, the companies that have got rural America under their thumb. It's completely possible, but the work happens uh, after we elect Joe Biden in 19 days. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, John, you have um, a very strong, specific viewpoint. Um, but last time around, commodity farmers in the Midwest, where you are, voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. And I mean, it seems like, from what I'm seeing so far, that will most likely happen again. Although maybe polls are suggesting the percentage might decrease. What do you think, based on just what you're hearing and seeing among farmers um, in your region? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a fair question, but let's put it this way. I mean, no, no one is, no one's happy uh, when they can't enjoy the fruits of their labor, the work that they put into something. And it's not going well uh, in the farm economy under Donald Trump. Um, you know, farmers this year, 40% uh, of their income is going to be made up by a payment from the government. The payments from the Trump administration 
are now many times uh, the size of the auto bailout. I mean, that's how much money we're talking about here that this guy is going hat in hand um, to uh, solve a problem of his own creation, right? And uh, while they may uh, stick with them, they're not happy about it. And I don't think we should confuse a vote for Donald Trump with enthusiasm about that vote. Um, you mentioned a poll or, you know, trends in, in polls uh, that kind of capture that feeling of, of disappointment with a guy that hasn't worked out. His margins in rural areas are half what they were in 2016. And uh, I think that's an accurate reflection of folks um, fed up with a system, an agricultural system that, would, that was kind of built by and for really large uh, food and fiber monopolies. Uh, they were fed up with that system, and Trump came along, and they, he seemed like a guy that was independent and tough enough to, to take that system on. Uh, and we tried it, and the results are in. And uh, it turns out that he's just a, a weak lapdog that's, that's taken marching orders from the folks who run these monopolies and that make contributions to uh, congressional candidates. And they're the same uh, people that order workers uh, back into meatpacking plants that have become COVID hotspots all across the Midwest. Um, these are the kind of people uh, who Trump keeps in his company, you know, and when somebody shows you who they are, you got to believe them the first time. And I think a lot of folks who uh, took a chance on him have um, seen the results, you know, and that, that goes to the last point, which is if, it, if there's a group of people that knows what bullshit smells like, it's farmers. I'm sorry, can I say that on the, on <laughs> yeah, the podcast? You can say whatever you want. <laughs> That's true. I mean, they know what a bum deal is. And, and farmers are not stupid. You know, they're, they're yeah. business people that are scrapping it out in one of the toughest industries out there. Uh, they took a chance. And uh, I don't think they're pleased with what they've seen. Uh, but they can be pleased with what Joe Biden is putting forward. Go back to all those things that I mentioned that made it into his ag plan. But even when you get beyond the, the snooze fest of policy that, that excites abnormal people like me, um, I think at the end of the day, people know Joe Biden for who he is. And that is a person that whenever a bill comes across their desk, you know who, who he's thinking about. It's not the people who run Cargill or the chicken magnates that are donating hand over fist to Donald Trump. When something comes across Joe Biden's desk, it is how does this affect the little guy? How does this affect somebody in Scranton? How does this affect uh, people in rural America? And when you have that as a starting point, plus all the tools that he's listened to and included in his ag plan, we have everything we need to leave Donald Trump in the past. And I just really can't wait until we do it. <laughs> well, John, thank you for coming on the show um, and giving us this little dispatch from the campaign trail. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm really glad that shows like yours exist. And uh, I'm always looking out for your articles and they're always uh, very on point. So thank you. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held.
The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.